guys, it's me, Johnny Poop Stains, and welcome back to Deep Shit. So this is a double welcome back, I guess, because I skipped a week last week. I uh, just got very sidetracked with having to go to Texas and do a wedding. I am ordained to perform wedding ceremonies, you know, from the Church of the Internet, and uh, one of my closest friends asked me to um, officiate, I believe is the word, uh, her wedding ceremony, and her now husband is, ironically, a big fan of this podcast. So even though I know him a little bit and I like him, he knows me way more, (laughs) or way better than I guess I know him. But hey, you know, time will solve those things. Anyway, welcome to Deep Shit. Um, Today's guest is comedian and heartthrob Hassan Minaj, right? Ladies, I just wanted to say the word heartthrob. I I don't get to say it ever. I never get to say it. Why would I ever be in a situation where I would use that word? Uh, What jumps to mind is being uh, a witness at a bank robbery and someone asking me to describe the robbers. I'm like, they were just a bunch of heartthrobs. That, that, that is the worst way to uh, describe a bank robber whose face I didn't see. They were just fit. They were in shape. They were heartthrobs, um, I guess, is why I would use that word. Anyway, I'm good at rambling, right? Um, we're going to talk about failure. It's something that um, is close to my heart. And Hassan deals with similar issues of comparing oneself to everything, to people that do exist, to ideas and concepts that don't really exist, but it uh, feel feels us, it feels, it feels us with uh, a terror of failing at this thing we love so much, which is stand-up comedying. And uh, I guess acting and writing to an extent as well. So this episode tends to be a little uh, inside baseball in how we talk about comedy and the comedy industry and stuff. And that's okay because you guys know I'm a comedian and obviously all my guests have been comedians. So sometimes that's just going to happen. And uh, that's fine. That's fine. These things happen. Um, Also, Hassan is uh, one of the few people of color. I've had on the podcast, which is an issue we do discuss. I mean, I've had Ali Wong and I've had Eric Andre for that one frustrating episode. (laughs) Frustrating for me, at least. I'm sure he had a great time. But um, I'm going to remedy that and have more people of color on, like myself, you know, friends of mine that are um, comedians and writers that uh, also have to deal with um, being a person of color in uh, a, a country that still considers itself one color or colorless, whatever that means. That's a, that's a, that's a big statement that will have to be examined some other time. Um, anyways, oh, Hazel, Basil, Faisal, Shazels, uh, it's an interesting conversation. And uh, I recently read Patton Oswalt's uh, letter to both sides, which was what he did in Montreal, the Just for Last, Last, Just for Laughs festival, 
last um, July, was it? Something? I don't know. This year. This last year. Very good. And there's some good uh, advice in there for comedians. Basically that um, things have changed. What his advice is, is irrelevant. Because what he had to go through to get to where he is now uh, doesn't really exist anymore. Those aren't the structures. And he mentions things like Twitter accounts and podcasts. Hey, that's why I'm doing this. Because we just got to create. So Hassan and I touch on that a little bit. Uh, we recorded this podcast before I read that. So that's not in it. But I just wanted to tell you guys I'm aware of things. So anyway, um, here is Hassan. So Actually, was meaning to bring up this. This is a side point. I, I'll, I'll bring it up. Bring it up later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, put uh, that. Put that up here. I'm gonna put this so right way here. You, so, so that way you. So that way you uh, don't turn away from the microphone too much. Okay, I'm gonna put it right here. Boom. So you can. Uh, yeah. Reference that shizzles. Yeah, man. Hopefully, it won't make too much noise. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm actually glad that you write stuff down. I think that was great. What you, do you mean? You mentioned that. You were like, I still write stuff down because there is this thing with gotta comics. Write it, gotta write it down. No, but there's comics at a certain level that they go. I, I don't. I don't do that. You know, I, I the thing is that I maybe it was because of that and hearing that that uh-huh. that's why I experimented with that. Uh-huh. There was a part of me that believed if it's important, I'll remember it, right? right. Like obviously, whatever sticks to my brain is what I should be talking about when I'm talking about a certain subject. Right. But when I listen to the recordings of myself, or I've heard old clips and seen old clips, uh-huh. and I'll be like, oh my, this whole pieces. Within bits that I've totally forgot that I'm like, that is, why didn't I remember that? Because that's the best part of that joke and I forgot it. Right. So I'm just like, no, I got to write it down. Right. And I like writing it down how by do you, hand. How do you deal with looking at yourself on tape? Do you? I, well, what I'm doing now is I am recording audio wise, uh-huh. you know, which is really easy with a phone or an iPhone or whatever. Right. And then I don't have to look at myself. Okay. It's, it, it takes the pressure off just hearing me. Uh-huh. And, because when I look at myself, then I, I get to like, oh, I'm fucking doing those three things I do all the time. Right, right. But listening to it is very different. Right. It makes me tune into the material more as opposed to my performance. Uh-huh. And I think that that gives me, it, it helps me, uh, you know, uh, edit the jokes better. Because okay. every time I listen to it, I'm like, yeah, there's like three things I just thought of that are better than what I've been saying. Right. And it's easier, especially if I'm driving around or something, I'm trying to listen to it like that. And then it, uh, I just find it more constructive. Have you, al- have you always written on stage? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, I, I, it's a continuous process. It's like I'm always thinking of stuff. Right. Every moment I'm writing down notes, you right. know, writing down notes into my phone or whatever is around me. Uh-huh. And I have like a big doc in my phone, which is like I was talking to Pete, like the note master. I just have, yeah. a, have a whole document of just ideas for jokes. And some of them are really fleshed out. It's right. a one-liner, yeah, yeah. and some of them are just like something about existence. Right. There's there's things that I've written that I'm like I have no idea. Have you ever thought it's like someone finds our phone? They'd be like, these people are fucking insane. They're, they're fucking insane. These people are nuts. There's an old um, Janine Garoppolo joke where she talks about getting robbed, uh-huh. and that someone uh, someone stole her purse. And she's like, there's all these things I'll never get back, like right. a license plate, a license picture that's amazing. Right. Like, I had a driver's license picture. I looked great in it. That's never going to happen again. Right, right, right. And my joke notebook is gone. Right. So if you see a couple cholos at the comedy pouch just 
bombing. <laughs> right, right. That's why. They probably have That's my why. joke notebook. That's so great. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I was just making sure we were recording. I was like, what? Oh, yeah, we are. You know what's so funny is like when, sometimes when I watch you, mm-hmm. you'll specifically when I watch like one of like a couple like of your TV sets, you would have like joke jokes up top. Mm-hmm. Like it might be like just a quip mm-hmm. up top. And I'm like, that's funny. That's good. But I'm always waiting. I've always like waiting for like fucking Baron to just ramp up and do, you know, do your thing. Yeah, but th- that's hard. I- I've learned it. That's hard, harder to bring to a late night spot. Totally. I mean, like a Comedy Central thing or, you know, something where it's stand up centric and you're right. in front of a live audience. Yeah. But it's different when you're on someone else's show. Yeah. And I, you know, like people, a lot of people gave Eddie Brill a shitload of shit. Right. But. Since I've done late night spots, right. I really understand what the hell he was talking about okay. in terms of like doing hard jokes. Just because the audience, this the expectation of the audience is very different than just a regular normal stand up comedy audience. Right. People that came to a show to see stand up comedy, uh-huh. they came to a show to see Letterman or Conan, yeah. and you're the five minutes where it's like, and now not me. And so you come out, and it's like when the jokes are harder. They're, they come with you more, and they don't come with the elaborations or extra tags. Right. It's just that they're really nervous for you. That's what I've, I've learned. And that's the first time they see you, right? When you come out of those curtains? That's ba- the first time they see you. Baron. Yes. They don't know what I look like. They don't know anything about me. They've heard my name if they were paying attention. Right. But they were probably cheering too loud at, at the first name that was said of someone they've heard of. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh shit! And Baron Vaughn, but they were already applauding yeah, yeah, for yeah. the other thing. So just, you roll exactly by proxy to JGL exactly. <laughs> oh man, oh that sucks. Because why don't they let you just interact with them before? Like, hey, I'm Baron. What's up? So you could keep the crowd in your back pocket. That was one thing that I loved about doing multicam sitcom mm. is that even if you messed up, you flubbed your line. I've never yeah. done single cam. But you flubbed your line, you could play to the crowd. You go, I messed up, guys. And then they'll laugh and, like, we're going to do it again. Then, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. have them in your pocket and they go, oh, we're involved. We yeah. This. But you see, oh, the yeah, thing, yeah, we'll the, do better next time. And that time. is the we'll thing that you, you get to build that intimacy or you get to build a little bit of a relationship with the crowd. Yeah. But you don't on a late night show. You're, right. a, you're literally a stranger uh-huh. to them, you know, in a place where they came because they have a familiarity with the host. Right. And the personalities of that show, the uh-huh. sketches, the rhythms, the blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like if I were to go on Conan and deviate from my jokes the way that Conan does, the audience would be so confused. Like, what is he doing? Who? Right. We don't know who you are. Right. You know, they don't know me well enough. So it's like it is, in essence, a presentation of a version of yourself, a quotation marks, a version of yourself uh-huh. that and and it's. It's the TV version of you. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, you're the one who wrote the material, but in a way, it's not really that representative of who you are on stage in a long set. Have you come to this realization after the fact? Yes. Yeah, after I did Fallon, it was when I, I kind of realized, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Right. Just because it was like I chose jokes that I thought were quote-unquote TV-friendly, but there weren't jokes I was totally in love with. Right. But I just thought they were the most translatable for a television audience. Right. And I did okay. I don't think I did really, really well. Right. But I think that I did okay and I got some good laughs. But I was disappointed in the set in a sense because I didn't think it was going to – I didn't hit as hard as I wanted to. Right. But it's hard for me, I think, because my act is so 
physical and character driven or it can be. Yeah. And sometimes people get caught up in that as opposed to what I'm saying. Yeah. That but I can't bring that to, you know, a late night show in a way. You can't be because the the camera's stationary. Right. It's in one place. Yeah. yeah. It's just you from your waist up. Uh-huh. You're you're static. Yeah. You're static. All you can do is just stand and deliver. But like on a Comedy Central show or HBO or Showtime kind of comedy sort of thing. You move around. You can move yeah, around yeah, because yeah. there's like five cameras that are shooting all these different a- angles. Right. So they can they can capture you better. I think the toughest thing is like for – we're all performers, but more performer-like comedians is finding that middle ground. Yeah, 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 yeah. Able to be like, oh, I'm I'm interacting with you guys. There's certain comics where I go, wow, like you broke that wall of the TV set. You made – you were you kind of broke it, I think. Uh, like Sean Patton had a great Fallon set. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Chris D'Elia just did Fallon, and he was just he did stand up on Fallon. It, he monster, mm. and he was playing off Jimmy, and it was it was incre- it was incredible to see. And to me, I go, wow, like that's so. I know how tough that it could, I can only imagine how tough that is. Well, you know, that's the other thing is that. Ultimately, perhaps I'm overthinking it. <laughs> right, right. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I don't Maybe know. I should just go out there and do exactly what I do. Mm-hmm. But it's hard not to overthink it because there's literally a guy whose job it is to make you insane about what it is that you're about to do on television. Oh, because of the the notes and the the notes and the going back and forth and the, like you're you're you have to stick to such a strict time, you know. And it's like, you know, because what was it? Um, what was that movie? Oh, and I am a comic. Yeah. You know, um, Jeff Foxworthy has this little thing where he talks about going on Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how adamant they were about sticking to his time. He's like, we want you to do this much time. Like, what is it? Four minutes. Not 350, not 410. Four minutes, right? right? So he's talking about drilling his set, and he goes up. And when he comes out and Johnny, he does his first joke, and he gets this big applause break, which right. is great. But he, that's never happened in the club. Right. So now it's messed up his time. Right. He's smiling there, waiting for them to stop laughing and applauding. Yeah. And he, in his head, he's like, this has messed up my time. Okay. And he's editing his set live. He's just like, okay, I'm not going to do that joke. I'm going to move that to right there. And he did that like off the top of his fucking head, which is incredible. That's incredible. But that's the thing. It's like you might do so well on TV uh-huh. that it messes up your TV set. Because <laughs> if you do too well, it messes up your time. That's if you do shitty, yeah. it messes up your time. Yeah. It's impossible to it's nearly impossible to to, because you don't know how the audience is going to react when you walked off fallon for example for the first time were Mm -hmm. you you like how did it feel i mean when you walked up were you just like i felt okay about it and everybody was okay you know and and the booker was 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 really nice to me it was great to me and jimmy was jimmy's literally you know he's like the the nicest guy ever right it's like not an act he's just like that nice which is great um but i felt i learned a lot I felt like I did okay. I could have done better. Right. I could have been great. I was yeah. just good. And you took so you took the lessons you took from say Fallon. Mm-hmm. I you applied them to Lopez. Lopez. Lopez was the next thing that I did. And how did that go? Well, lo- with Lopez, I decided, and because with Jimmy, I tried to do jokes that were shorter. Right. Um, and that way, I had more variety of subject. Uh-huh. And then with Lopez, I decided to do two bits. In their entirety. Yeah. Since my bits tend to run long anyway. I did an entire thing on like uh, pickup lines. Right? Oh, the line. I remember that. Like I have a, and it was, was like, great. it's just one big thing. Yeah. But 
I learned how the audience projects a finality. Like once you hit a, when, if you hit a subject and you get a big applause break, they think you're done with that subject. They were like, ha ha, that's all to say about that. Right. And then I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then I continued on it and they're like, oh, he's still talking about it. Okay. Right. But I just wanted to see what that was like to do one, like two jokes in their entirety. Yeah. You know? And of course the, the Lopez people saw it and they, and they approved it. Yeah. So I wanted to see what that was like. I actually saw you do that set at Bar Lubitsch. Yeah. That was the set. Yeah. That was the show that I got and what was so, after that. what was so fascinating to me was like, I, I didn't know. I was like, how is the Lopez crowd? You mean you're asking? Yes. Are they diff- very much – you and Adomian, what I thought was great is you guys stuck to what you wanted to do. Right, right, right. And that's what I. That's what was the lesson that I learned from Fallon. It's like, okay, how about I just try to do it exactly the way that I already do it yeah. and see what that's like, see if that works. And I saw that it didn't really work all the way. Uh-huh. It works a little bit. So now I'm trying to find with, – with, when I did Conan, I was trying to find that middle ground. Right. And if I do Conan again, then I hopefully will have approached that. Because when, um, when Hari Kondabolu did it, yeah. He called me about it because he was wildly overthinking it. He's quite neurotic. Right. So, um, uh, and he called me. He's like, I, I almost want to say that he didn't even say hello. I, I want to say that the moment I answered the phone, he was like, microphone or no microphone? That's like the first thing that he said. Yeah. And we had a long discussion about it because I had just seen Jamie Lee do Conan. Yeah. Who used a, a, a lapel mic. Uh-huh. Yeah, a, a lav, a lavalier lav- instead of a handheld. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I said to Hari, I said... Um, I says, I says, I think the audience comes with you more if you don't have a handheld mic, because the handheld mic is very formal. Yeah. And the the show, in a sense, operates under this air of informality. Right. That it's like the guys that hey, we're just talking. They're just talking. Yeah. At no point has the audience been conscious of microphones. Yeah. You know, because they're hidden on people's bodies. Yeah, yeah. People are moving naturally and right. talking however they talk, right. but not into a mic. Right, right. Suddenly a comedian comes out with this mic, it's an instant barrier. Right. And what and to go back to what you told me when you were you were coaching mm-hmm. yeah, a, yeah. A, a few days ago. Yeah. Let me see your face. Yes, 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 yes. It actually lets them see your face more of you and that's what i was saying to hurry i was saying that like because he tends to hold it kind of high up as right. do i and i thought and i was trying so hard not to block my face right, right, right. but he his his point ultimately and of course i support him was he's just so used to doing it with a microphone right, right. and it's like he's doing this he wants to be comfortable, comfortable so he's going to do what what is comfortable because he was already thinking like well what am i going to do with my hands if i'm not holding a mic right. i'm like well what do you do with your hands when you're just having a conversation it's like, do that. It's, it's, it's the same thing. Right. But if he was already in that place where he's thinking about it too much, right. then perhaps he should use the mic. And he used the mic and he did fine. Yeah. But I think that with, with Jamie Lee, she, they just, I feel like they, they just lean in a little bit more if you don't have totally. the mic. I totally agree. And I was like, oh, it, and it was interesting to see. And it's like, because you're still in the, the world of the show, yeah. which is you're just a person talking. Uh-huh. So I think if I do it again, I would do it without a mic and see if, see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> I'm using every late night uh, experience it's as an so experiment. Great that you use, yeah, that's you're like I'm. <laughs> I'm trying to at it's least. Your, it's your television open mic run. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. You know, my first spot is like this, so I try to switch it this way. Hey, man. Well, that's an interesting thing that you say because it's like when I read like the uh, you know biographies of like old famous comics that used to do like you know Sullivan and Jack Parr and yeah. and all that stuff. They uh, they um, didn't rehearse their. Like it's like they were booked to do the show. There was no micromanaging of what your act was going to be. And Pryor talks about doing TV sets where that's literally the first time he's ever said what he's saying. That was no, just really that was the paradigm then. 
they would go, hey, we just like you and what yes. you represent yeah. and say. Do your do whatever five minutes you think are best. But then also it was a time where people had more patience mm-hmm. because there was not 800 channels. There right. were three. Yeah, yeah. So it's like if they were going to watch, they're just going to watch. Right. They're not going to flip the channel because there was nothing else. They either watch this or they turn the television off. Uh-huh. So it's like you could... You know, and then those those sets were really long too. Yeah, people would do fifteen minute long TV sets. I gotta go back and watch some of these things. Watch them. Yeah, they're fascinating. Watch the Priors and the and Cosby and Woody Allen and just whoever you can find. And and you see, you see, and it, and it kind of tells the story of comedy of the evolution of it in a sort of a way. Like you see, like in the seventies, mid seventies, the TV sets start to become very particular thing. Because okay. before that, it was just kind of all over the place. Yeah. And you see these comedians who are brilliant, but they're rambling here and there. They're just doing whatever. Okay. And it tightens up as time goes on. And it tightens up. It becomes more and more. Let's, you know, people were like, let's let's make that more succinct. Let's try to really maximize the laughs right. and all that stuff. And then by the 80s, like, that's when the TV set, as we know it now, I think, really started. Okay. You know, and it kind of shows the it, it corresponds to the evolution of, of comedy as a national thing. Yeah, because it was like, well, there's only these clubs and then suddenly there were touring comedians. And right, then it was right. like there was comedy clubs everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then there were a lot of people being comedians. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting book that I love it's called Comedy at the Edge, which I. Oh, man, I've been reading you read that. Yeah, I stole it from Sean Crespo and I never gave it back. <laughs> um, I wonder if I gave it back. I don't know. Sean, if you're listening, I owe you a book. Um, I also have the uh, I'm Dying Up Here book that I haven't read yet. I'm Dying Up Here is fantastic. I haven't read that yet. Oh, man. Yeah. That talks about what I wanted to talk to you about. What's that? The failure thing. Oh, shazzle dazzles. You go down. Go in it. Okay. So getting to it, brother. Yeah. I'm Dying Up Here is a story of the comedy store during its golden era. And it's this guy. It it follows the the story of this guy who moves out to Los Angeles with um is it the journalist you're talking about the journalist He's william william whatever he yeah. was friends with this william something polish yeah with this guy who actually if you're next to the comedy store if you recognize there's this hotel called the andaz hotel he jumps in the end of the book oh yeah yeah that's in comedy at the edge yeah as well the guy when, the, when the strike happened at yeah, the, the strike, comedy store guy jumps off that he killed himself he killed himself uh who's that guy who's larry david's friend who's always in curb he has the long hair he has like the man mullet uh what do you, you know what? Long hair man mullet? It's like uh You're talking about Richard Lewis? Richard Lewis. <laughs> he moves out. I have he never, out. ever heard anyone Long. describe Richard Lewis as the guy with the man mullet. He's the neurotic kind of guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, he I got you. With Richard. So, and we're talking like young Richard Lewis when having hair like that was like cool. So he's he moves out with it with him then. Wow, you're really taking the I'm piss th- out of Richard I'm th- Lewis right I'm now. I'm taking shots at Richard Lewis. I've, I've heard- he's an avid fan of this podcast. So oh, is he? Okay. I have no idea. He, can, <laughs> he moves out with him. And yeah. Basically, it follows how much comedians would die for Mitzi Shore's approval. They would literally kill themselves. Yeah. Over, and yeah. that's the sad irony of the... That's why the comedy store frightens me, because it feels like a haunted house. Totally. <laughs> it feels like a morgue in a haunted house. <laughs> to- to- totally. Uh... But sometimes I'll go there and I'll do spots every once in a while and I'll walk by that wall and I'll see all those photos and I'll go, what's, what are they doing? What's, what's he doing right now? Right, right, right. What is he doing? Right. And I know when I read through the books and it's as if I'm pulling up spirits are popping out of the pages where they talk about a guy and 
he was a real estate agent. Then he stopped, and he came out, and it was the summer of 82, and Jay Leno was there, and Letterman's in the back, and what's going to Johnny Carson, and all this crazy shit is happening. And all these people are like, this is my life. This is my destiny. And I'm not going to lie to you. And what I wanted to talk to you about is like, and the reason why I asked you about the TV, television stuff is I hit these junctures all the time where I go, I should just quit. Well, what, what, what is it that you're talking about? Because you said failure. So you're talking about failure slash rejection slash, slash yeah. fear slash anxiety. Slash fear slash anxiety. In the career sense. So Absolutely. what what does that mean to you? What What is that thing that you feel that makes you want to quit? When you say like, oh, I should just quit. You know, I think it's... Um, this is a good pause. Go ahead. Take your time. I'm just here. <laughs> It's no, 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 because I, I just don't want to just blurt, you know, and just like, blurt. but talk it through, man. Yeah, yeah, whatever. It's you, you are happy with what you've accomplished. Mm-hmm. I look at sometimes like my bank account and I can't believe I go, wow, I've generated income doing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a savings yeah. from this. Okay. <laughs> I have a savings account from yeah. jokes. From this. Okay. Very bizarre. But. Also, the comparison things. When you see friends or others, certain peers that get to this place that, that get yeah, to a place you would love to be, right? And but th- then you ask yourself, "I'm not there." Is it? And you go one of two directions: Am I not there because I'm not good enough, or am I not there because, man, the system fucking hates me? That oh man, that scene doesn't like. And then you start going into that veil. Right, right, right. They, oh, they don't even know that guy sucks. He's, he so it's either it's either uh, bitterness or despair. Despair. <laughs> Compare or despair. You know that that's the old saying. Uh, uh-uh. But either I don't way, even know if that's real or if it's just an SNL sketch. But either way, I, I, when you go down one of those two trajectories, you either go, "I'm not good enough. I suck," or "Man, fuck these guys." Like I just, they're not good enough. They, they suck. They suck. I'm not part of the cool kids club. Both of them lead to this final thing where you're just like, "I'm just gonna leave the game." Mm. It's gonna. I'm gonna be like Jay Z, but highly anticlimactic. <laughs> I've had this tweet in my back pocket for a long time. Sometimes where I go, I could quit co- comedy tomorrow, and no one would care. In fact, more people in my life would probably be happy. Somebody told me. Now I'm not trying to be like, hey, feel sorry for whatever. I'm, but I'm just. I'm being. Just well, but 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 being that that sometimes I think about these that things. phrase. I could quit comedy tomorrow, and no one would care. Yeah. Someone told me, you know Charlene Yee? Yeah. Someone told me that they saw her speak or something uh-huh. and that she was in that place maybe and a teacher or somebody, a mentor said, you could quit comedy tomorrow and nobody would care. And she took that as an inspirational thing. Where it's like, no one would care. That's true. I can do whatever I want then. So she took that as a piece of freedom. But I, like you, take that and like, I guess everything I've done is meaningless then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody would care. People would be like, hey, what happened to that guy? Yeah. If no one says what happened to that guy, it means that nothing happened. And they go, oh, he, he actually works for Enterprise, and he works in their corporate office in, in uh, Michigan. Yeah. Good, good for him. Good for him. Yeah, he's got a wife and kids, blah, blah, blah. They go, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know he did. He was fairly legal two seasons, four, whatever, late night. No, no, but he's got the kid in the minivan. Good. And then I just, it breaks my heart. But then here's the thing. What am I am I doing? Then I'm I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And the reason why I specifically wanted to talk to you about this here is yeah. we had a conversation yeah. 
several years ago. Okay. We were going to a college in Tennessee. Yeah, me, you, and Marcus. Yeah. Right? That was in Utah, but me and you did another school in Tennessee. Oh, 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 oh. I got that speeding ticket. You were like, slow down, man. And I, I kept driving fast. That's so right. That's you go, right. You go, you, go, you go, slow down, man. I wasn't with you when you got the ticket, though, was I? You were with me, and then I got the ticket, and you were just like, man. That's, you're like, I told you to slow down, man. I don't remember <laughs> that. Really? <laughs> it was so great. And that was my first dose of Baron. Here's one thing I would say about you. Baron, you are – you remind me of my buddy Fahim because – you know Fahim Anwar? Yeah, yeah, I know Fahim. You guys can just lay information like that. And it can cut so deep, but you say it so matter-of-factly. And you do it with yourself sometimes. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. This is why I can't hang out with Fahim. Uh, We're too similar. This is an example. You talked about a text exchange that you had with a girl. You told me about this outside of Bruco. And you were just brutally honest to her. You were like, I feel you're t- saying these things about me because you're X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, whoa. You literally laid out the blueprint for her. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then um, – yeah, just I feel like sometimes like even with the the comedy thing that you admitted to Pete, like the thing about you're just like, maybe I'm not supposed to be great. Like you're just <laughs> Oh, and then on the Ali Wong episode, you were just like uh you were like, I will be jealous or envious of a person because they have X, Y, and Z physical attributes. And I'm like, Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is I mean, that's just a gutsy th- a lot of people just Jesus. will not admit that. I just see and it. Just, as... say, just say it as a matter of fact. You're like, I'm intimidated of you because you have straight teeth and muscles. And without getting sad, well, it's without I, changing your tone. I, I guess in a way it's like I have to say it to let it go. Like a receipt comes out of your mouth like a robot. It's, like, <laughs> it's a receipt. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a personality receipt. Yeah. It's like, here's what I don't like about you. Take that. Thank yeah, you very much. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. So it's like I have to let – yeah, huh, that's interesting. That's an interesting way to see it. I've never seen it the way that you're describing it. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying it's good. About, I'm saying that's like – it's just like fascinating to oh, me. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, guess yeah. that's a good thing. I don't know what the heck it is. Yeah. But what was the thing that I said to you? Was this in the car after car. you got a this ticket? Was, this was the car. Was, yeah. It was just – you were just like, told you you shouldn't speed it, you know? And it was so matter- – you were so right in saying that. But at the time, you're looking at this $275 thing and you're like – give me some empathy here and you're like you're like no i told you not to speed you're speeding bad idea <laughs> on to the college <laughs> and wow yeah, it just it reminded it, 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 it was a 275 dollars yeah. yeah that's right in the rental in a rental it goes up because the rental company charges you a fee for getting a ticket don't they yeah <sighs> yeah it's it atrocious so bad. That was like half the money you made at the college. Yeah, yeah. And I go, and I go. Oh, this, this. I call Eastern Tennessee State speeding ticket university. Speeding ticket university. university. Jeez. Yeah. Jeez, Louise. Uh. So, but uh, that 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 car ride was really great because I think you were at an interesting point in your life too, where you. I think you guys had just done Awkward Kings. Wow, was oh, it that long ago? Three years, two thousand nine. Yeah, maybe it was about that. T- no, no, no. Awkward Queens. Awkward Queens. Awkward Kings was a little. Well, when it aired, was a good year after we shot it. So that makes yeah. sense. If it was two thousand nine, that might make sense. Yeah. yeah. So, but you were just talking about this like notion of. We were talking about specifically like certain comedians that, like, blew up very quickly, mm-hmm. without maybe say cutting their teeth or grinding or, quote unquote, paying their dues as much as others. Okay. And uh, you you told me a specific quote, and I'll never forget. It. And I told you this outside of Bruco. You said, 
jealousy is like Satan's cock in your eye. It just keeps poking you over and over and over again. So you got to just kill that shit early on. Yeah. And what's so funny to me is I go, we've all felt it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure at some point you might, you might have been feeling that more so than during, do you know what I mean? That you might have been feeling that more during that particular that period when I was talking about it. Sure. That's very possible. Yeah, I do. My jealousy is very, very rarely, if ever, uh, interpersonal relationship jealousy. You know what I mean? Like the people around me. It. My jealousy is uh, envy. Is more the word here? Right. Is professional. Yeah. Where it, that's the comparison. Where it's like, God damn it, that person got this, this, and this, and I have this and this. Yeah. But it makes it very difficult for me to see what I've actually achieved because I'm fixating on the things that I don't have as opposed to the things that I actually do have. You know what I mean? And that's why – and that's the, the trap. Of course, you can never see what you have when you're looking towards something else. Right. It's the grass is greener on the other side of your neurosis yeah. <laughs> in, a sort of, in a sort of a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like that is the thing that I do struggle with, and I try – Whenever I let it go, because when I'm feeling it the most, it's like I can't do anything. You know what I mean? I'm it's like, literally crippling. It's, it is a crippling thing. It's like I, I can't create. I can't think right. I can't, you know, I just I can't find any motivation to do anything. And uh, so that's how I know it's not conducive in any sort of way. But when I don't feel it, when I just have to concentrate on the me of my meanness yeah. and do what it is I believe I'm doing and try to do that better than I've been doing it, then it, it kind of fades away. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm, I don't have time for it. Right. So it's like, that's why it's like, you know, uh, my friend Livia Scott, uh, is a comedian, actress, writer in New York. Um, her cousin, I believe is like right. an, an Olympian. It's like an Olympic athlete may, may have some medals. Uh-huh. Right. She's very motivated, extremely motivated person. OK. And Libby and I were talking once. and I remember her saying to me that what her cousin said to her. And this is something I've thought about a lot. And I've still it's hard for me to do is you have to plan your day the night before, you know, like you're in bed. You're like, OK, tomorrow I'm going to do this, this, this and this. Right. Hey, well, you have a game plan when you wake up, you know where you're going and you know what you're doing. Right. If you wake up. And think, what am I going to do today? You've already wasted the day. Right. That's usually how I wake up. <laughs> right. That's how a lot of comics wake up. I'll wake up, up like, okay, what am I going to do today? But if, and then I start thinking about it, and I think too much. And then I become overwhelmed by the big picture. Right, right, and know. then I do nothing. I'm like, that can wait till tomorrow, Let's I guess. Use Netflix to just get through. Let's just see today. what Netflix. Oh, a hard hitting documentary about bees. <laughs> right, right. Don't mind if I am Netflix. <laughs> right. Um, so it's like that's a big self motivator. And every time I do that, when I do it, when I'm like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to do this, this, and this. Yeah. It's just the I set my alarm for the time I need to get up. Yeah. And then I get up out of bed. When I do that, it's like there's no time to think about all the bullshit that I'm piling on top of myself and my own brain. Right, right. It's like, then I'm, I'm, I'm out there. You don't have time to check up on Facebook and Twitter about what everyone else is doing and what you're not. Exactly. And having that remind you as you refresh it every 10 minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Refresh it and refresh Facebook and be oh, like... Oh, and more things are happening in the world that I'm not doing. Oh, okay. And you just like delve into like a yeah. sadder and sadder. So yeah. like, th- what, what is this... How is this manifesting itself for you 
for me right what, now for me one of the toughest things i i think and this is sometimes why i was like man i miss san francisco or sometimes i wish I, I lived in new york because i feel there was a culture of just doing it was enough and by it i mean stand up mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. enough but a lot of times the pressures of the hollywood system come yeah bearing their they just it's breathing on my neck one of the worst especially because you're you have you're in close proximity to all these people that are like we're saying this the comparison thing totally i just saw that guy last night yeah and now he's the lead in this movie absolutely really absolutely yeah and, and i i wanted to say this as a performer of color we deal with it even more i'm in the sketch group called goat face it's me fahim asif aristotle Asif Fali? Asif Ali. Oh, I didn't know that. Aristotle Theorist. Very, very talented director and performer. Okay. So he shoots a lot of our stuff, and it's been doing very well. Uh, and like they, It gets featured a lot of times. They get featured in Gawker and HuffPo or whatever. And someone in passing came up to me, and we're all kind of brown. In a, some themes Afghan. I'm Indian. Ari's Greek or whatever. But we're kind of – we right. go out for the same type. Sanjay, 20 to 25. Improv right, comedy right. skills a must. Dickless and docile Indian friend. <laughs> Let yeah. the cattle call begin. And I'm sure, as like black male ethnic friend, you've dealt with that many a time. Of course. But someone came up to me, a comic, and they said it in passing, but it was as a joke, but also kind of serious. They go, you know, only one of you is going to pop. Hmm. You know, there's only room for, for, for one of you. Hmm. And black comedians have had that concept called the HNIC, head nigga in charge. Right, right, There's right. always one guy. Well, and I've gotten in this conversation with people about like that basically since the 70s. Right. There's been one black comedian Definitive that, voice that, of... that defines a decade Yeah, prior, then Murphy, right, then right. Chris Rock, right, right. then Chappelle, Chappelle. kind of gave up his seat in a way. Cat Williams became the guy for like a couple well, of years. Well, I, I would crazy. say that Chappelle gave up his seat and then yeah. kind of the void was filled sort of by Cat Williams. And then he went then crazy. He, and then now it's Kevin Hart probably. Kevin Hart. Yeah. And to me, what's so interesting, and man, I... And but, I, you know, there's other people in there like Jamie Foxx and people right. that kind of... But, like, a black comedian who kind of defines the voice of black comedy for a decade. Right. Which, of course, is debatable, but continue what you're right. saying. But the, so you got the H-I-I-C. Yeah, yeah, Head yeah, Indian it, in charge. Right, or whatever. Head brown guy in charge or whatever. But what... what, what the, and what's crazy is because of that placement of that person, mm-hmm. you'll notice even in casting breakdowns, mm-hmm. they'll say that type. Yeah, 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 yeah of go, course. <laughs> you even had that uh, fucking Chris t- Chris Rock. I have that joke, yeah. Chris Rock pop locking. But it's the thing that like, and that's based on like Robert Townsend's movie. Like, it's like he's been he dealt with that. Yeah. So it's like it's just still the same. Th- I'm sure that Chappelle went out and it was like Chris Rock type, Chris Rock type, totally. Eddie Murphy type when Neil, he was auditioning. Neil actually talks about how like when Killing Him Softly first, or for what it's worth. I'm sorry. It was yeah. For what it's worth, came Kill, Killing Him Softly was first. 2004. Okay. For what it's Killing Him Softly first comes out on HBO. You think about an HBO special back then, mm-hmm. 12 years ago, big deal. And he talked about how like Dave called his manager the next day, and he's like, "So what's 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 going on? We doing a movie? What's what's happening?" And he's like, "Sorry, no one's no one gives no, a shit. No one gives a shit." And Neil was like, "They were so on Chris Rock's dick at that time mm-hmm. that it was irrelevant." And by the way, now after the fact, both Chris Rock and D- Dave are like cool. They they both respect They're each other. They're trying to do that yeah, tour, totally. Which I will fucking see. That would be phenomenal. Uh, I'll pay for a ticket. Yeah, I will pay for a ticket for yeah. that show. Yeah. So, but I could imagine how like how do you? Because sometimes I feel like I'm in that rut. How do you just get through that? How do you deal with that and go? Okay, I'm gonna. Well, you're you're, you're doing it though. Goat face. Yeah. That's the point of it. 
Yeah. Right? You're uh, uh, different brown men right. writing roles for different brown men. Yeah. A lot of the times when those, those uh, breakdowns come down right. and it's for a person of color, it wasn't written by a person of color. Yeah. It's, a, it's, so, it's an outsider's, if you will, perspective right. of a person of color. Right. And, of course, we know the phenomenon of the magical Negro, which is the same, uh, I would say, magical gay person, magical Indian, magical Asian person. Right. Uh, you know, like, or magical Chinese, Japanese person. Uh-huh. Um, it's written in a way, the, the point of that is to not offend. Right. Is that like, okay, if I'm going to put a black person in this, I'm going to make them the best person that, of everybody. Have you have you seen that Keen Peel sketch? Like, Which one? The 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 magical black guy. It's it's the janitor. You oh know, no no, I, haven't seen it. Yeah, you gotta watch that. Well, story. I'll definitely watch yeah, it. But what's the point of it? Basically, yeah. the gist the gist of it is how every kind of feel good movie has just kind of just a old fifty something Morgan Freeman type janitor cleaning guy. It's yeah, just like here's some gems of wisdom. Continue on, white protagonist. <laughs> and then that he helps them complete their hero's journey. Right. But, uh, but that, but, and, yeah. and the, the irony of that, though, right. is that, of course, usually it's written by a white person, but they're trying to, to compliment us. Totally. They're, they're trying to, like, well, there's only going to be one black person in this movie. Let's make him the best. Let's possible. make him the best person filled with, and they won't see that insulting. But that's the thing. It's like, no, we have flaws. Yeah, we're we're all over the place, and then we start to see like, well, that's how white people see us, as an extension of their story. Yeah, that we don't have our own stories. Right, we're just supporting roles in them trying to figure out what they're I trying to, to do. I wanted to tell you this when you do you were doing that that joke the other night at uh, at bar uh, at uh, French to- toast. Text text yes. yeah, yeah yeah at French toast yeah what what did I, what joke you did, did this I do? joke and it, just from the premise alone I was like please. Let that joke continue to live. You talked about your like the black test. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The most difficult thing about it is that even we do not know what it means to be Be black. black. I turn and I look and I go. I in my mind I go yes. Defining who we are, our identity Mm -hmm. as people of color in this country, Mm -hmm. we're never originally here to begin with. Is fucking to me is a huge thing of our journey, personal journey Mm -hmm. versus just being white, which is the norm. I look in the audience as soon as you said that premise. Everybody else nod, nodding and acknowledging. Black girl, go in. She did this. I, and I totally yes, noticed and her. She curled yes. Over and I go, keep doing that. It's important that you do that, even though 95% of this room is not. They go, what? They were just like, acknowledgement of fact. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't give you any. And I'm like, but this is. Oh, fuck. I'm, well, that's that that's joke another, is. I mean, uh, ultimately, oh, that joke is for her, and of course, she gets it from the premise. She I gets got, it from the I premise. Mean, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not that, but I get it because I reckon with that. Yeah, too. of course. Yes, but that's the thing. It's that like when you're a person of color in America, you are not only dealing with what you're not only dealing with um, what it is that the majority is projecting onto you, right? But everyone is having that projected onto them. Like everyone that is of your group, if you will, is having that projected on them and everyone's fighting against it. And in that, a lot of infighting happens amongst the group. For it's like, well, what are we supposed to put out? Stop doing that. You're ruining it for all of us. No, you stop doing it. You're ruining it for all of us. You know what I mean? Ruling it, ruining it. Ruining it. So it's like we're fighting against 
a majority projection right. and then we're fighting against internal projection as well that we're all supposed to live we're all trying to live up to some idea that is being either shoved down our throats uh-huh. or shoved down our throats because the other person is trying to shove you know which it's being shoved down our throats by a person who's trying to also avoid right being having something shoved down their throat right <laughs> does that make any sense no 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 yeah it's like it's from two from like the outside world and then internally mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. your own house there's bickering yeah 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 it's but what are you going to do about that joke because it's incredibly honest but we know that the majority of rooms that we do that, mm-hmm. we, that we flourish and that we want to do mm-hmm. the majority of the audience members will not be of that ethnicity well how, how do you de- how do you deal with that it's, it's a difficult joke because it's not the kind of joke that i can do in a black room right because i'm telling them something they already understand right okay they're just like yeah we don't need to hear about this we're already see that it's the opposite of and it's like everyone will get this in that room because that's their lives yeah. you know <laughs> what i mean so right. it's not going to make any difference to them for me to continue to talk about something they've all experienced right, right. I, the, the joke is explaining it to people that don't understand it okay in a sort of a way but it also is for I trying to I trying I trying I'm trying to also turn it into something that people who do understand it can also appreciate it. Okay. You know, I've given this note to people a lot when I, I when they have an idea for a bit and I'm like, well it needs a it there's a way to describe it that people who are familiar with what you're talking about will appreciate it and then people who have no idea what you're talking about will understand it. So it's like you have to make the people that are on board be like, yes, that's exactly what it is, and I appreciate yes, that. Yes, thank you. And yeah. then you have to make the people that have no idea what you're talking about go, right. wow, I, okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Right. So it's like a du- it's a double job. Right. But there's like there's got to be a way that there's wording that will that will one sentence can do both of those jobs. Right. If you think about it, <laughs> you know, for yeah, longer than five yeah, minutes, yeah. and it that piece, the black test piece, is part of a bigger thing that i'm trying to create but it's such a giant giant idea it's in a, a sort of way idea. so it's like for the listeners if you haven't heard it which i assume some of you haven't basically the bit the point of the bit is but you that, realize if this bit gets flushed out before you get into it it could be like a seminal bit yeah it, it, it could fa- it, it, it could the be potential of the t- t- topic you're talking about well you know what i mean and that's where i've i've struggled with it is like where to take it it's a kernel of something right now and i'm just leaving it where it is but the uh, the essence of the bit essentially mm-hmm. is that um, black people don't generally like other black people because we don't agree on what black means, right? And that's, and that's of course, what I always notice is that there's always different groups and different kinds of black people that are pointing fingers at the other groups of black people as the imposters, right? right, right, right. Because we're obsessed with authenticity. Right. But we've all been given a version of what is authentic right. from sources that we can't trace. Yeah. Which just causes confusion. Confusion. Yeah. So black people are fucking confused. Right. right. That's the biggest, that's the essence of the bit. Right. And the way that I describe it is through the black test is how black people, black strangers talk to each other to find out, to gauge where, what your definition of blackness might be and whether or not I want to be involved with you or not. Right. That's essentially the bit. And the other bits that I've tried to tie it to are, being black in a different country and because you know there's always this debate of what is it that we're putting out what are the messages that black people are putting out like what are we and aren't we responsible for right that's the whole debate about the channel bet it's like it should be putting out this image of blackness and then they're like well we're just putting out what people want to see you know our our fan base is black and they want to see this so we're just 
doing out. we're just doing what is we're just supplying what's being demanded for. Yeah, but you shouldn't do that. You should put out what people should demand. You should create the demand right. for something that's different. So, but when I go to other countries, when I've been in other countries, that's when I finally see what we've been putting out because they have no context at all. Uh-huh. So what so to me, whatever pops up in their head first yeah. is what we're putting out. You know what I mean? And what it's have like, you found that to be? Well, there's just a couple different Europe. things. I uh, I was in Sweden, uh-huh. right? Uh, a group of Swedish kids walking towards me. They didn't see me, right? One of them, and I tweeted this too. One of them, when he was stepping up on the curb, didn't see the curb, uh-huh. and he tripped a little bit, and he almost fell. Uh-huh. And then when and then he he went, "Whoa, nigger!" Whoa, that's what he said. Uh-huh. That was his response to, to tripping on a curb. Right. right. That was his version of, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. Right. Right, yeah. Then they noticed me. <laughs> okay. There was a little bit of a, I just kind of walked like I didn't hear anything, even though I wanted to punch and kick or say something. I didn't know what the fuck to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they kind of noticed me, and they're like, oh, shit, right? Uh-huh. And the girl, the girl that he was with was mortified, right? She... I don't know if she would have had this reaction had she not seen me. But right. she was like, what are you saying? What? That's not what? Yeah. And then there was laughing. And I wrote, uh, basically, I wrote a tweet that he did that. I saw a Swedish guy trip him on the curb. And he said, whoa, nigger. Then he saw me. And I said, you be tripping. And then we all laughed until I cried. That was, <laughs> yeah. that was, yeah. that, and that was my little joke. And people, some, I got some responses. People were angry. Like yeah. friends of mine are like, that's not funny. Right. I'm like, that's the point. Right. It's not funny. Some guy. Yeah. But like people in Sweden are saying nigger. Yeah. Like I've heard that uh, like uh, Japanese teenagers. Yeah. Are saying nigger like just in their lives that you can hear them use it while they're speaking. Hard R. I don't know if it. No, no. Okay. A-H. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, no hard R. They're okay. Because they're not listening to country music. Right. They're listening to hip hop. Right. So if you are listening to a music of a culture where it's not your first language. Right. And. It's basically mathematical patterns. If there's there's a certain word that yeah. continues to show up, right? Like uh, you know, just like a signal, like a code word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you don't, un- if that's not your culture, okay. But you see that as really cool. What these people are is cool, and I want to be that. Right. If you you might like, well, they have this code word. Perhaps if I use that code word, that is the key to being cool like that. Which is why you can walk around. The streets of Tokyo. Yeah. And you yeah. might just hear, Konnichiwa, nigga. You might just hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, that's the bigger idea that I, those are some of the ideas that I was like, okay, that could all kind of fit together. Yeah. But it's so, it's big. And I guess, and I, I was like, ah, that could be its own hour. You've opened up a fucking Pandora's box. A, a Pandora's, ba- a can of Pandora. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pandora worms. Yeah. It's a whole fucking situation, but I, I, I'm working on it, I guess. I yeah. I, I haven't even talked about it that much s- until now. Right. Until just talking in this conversation. I'm like, yeah, okay. But thank God I'm recording it. I can listen back to this. Yeah. I and be know, like, it, oh, that's interesting. Well, I just wanted to tell you that. I was like, I felt that's just, it's just important what you were doing, what you were saying. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Um, so when you. Yeah. Do you ever go through this? So to go back on when I go. You're, you're going to tell me, you're going to ask me if I ever go through something you go through. Yes. Okay. Well, just tell me what you go through, bro. Okay. This is what I go through. <laughs> Because what was I doing? I was, I was going to ask for validation. I go, yeah. Mean, hey, you feel this too. Oh, I'm no. not alone. Just say it. Just say it. Okay. So I go, I'm having these doubts about I'm not doing or I'm not where I need to be or where I would want to mm-hmm. be. I see other people and I would love to be where they are. Maybe I don't have what it takes to be there. 
therefore the people that I look up to, these people, maybe I'm never destined to be like any of them. Conversely, I ask myself, did any of these people, and you have Pryor, Steve Martin, and Cosby on your wall, did mm-hmm. they ever doubt themselves and go, man, I don't have it? Of course they did. Really? Of course they did. And I, you can, if you read their books, you, you see it. You read their autobiographies. They had their fucking doubts. Yeah, I read, I read, I read Steve Martin. Steve Martin stopped doing stand-up because he's like, I no longer have control over this. Right. You know? That's what he said. He's like, the whole reason he started doing stand-up was it was this, this wild experiment. Yeah. To test and challenge the audience. Right. Then he got to such an extent that everyone knew his stuff. Everyone was in on it. He could no longer push them. Or he felt like this responsibility now. He was selling out stadiums. People yeah. were quoting his jokes, making requests, wearing the, the, you know, the bunny ears and the, the arrow. Yeah. And showing up in white suits. Yeah. That he's like, wow, this has become something else. Right. I no longer have control over this. Right. He got too big for his own britches in a way and had to stop. Yeah. Richard Pryor... When he first saw Bill Cosby, was like, "That's what I want to, to do," right, right, right. and he says that in his autobiography. I wanted to be Bill. Co- I wanted to be Richard Cosby. He's like, "That's what I wanted. I wanted to be Bill Pryor, Richard Cosby." And the first, and there's still, and there's TV sets of Pryor doing his Cosby version of his act, yeah. where it was kind of family friendly ish, uh-huh. even though Pryor's upbringing doesn't translate to Cosby's as much, right. because Cosby, even though he grew up. Essentially in the streets, in the ghetto. Yeah. It was still relatively wholesome. Right. Right? But Pryor grew up in a fucking whorehouse. Yeah. So it's like he he was trying to make that palatable. Yeah. And he talks about a gig that he had in Vegas. Right. The famous bit where he goes, what am I doing? He just fucking left. Yeah. You know, and he says in his book that he was he he walked off the stage and was like, "I can't do this." Yeah. That's when he went and go camped out in Berkeley, right. you know, and figured out who the fuck he was. Started hanging out with counterculture and started bringing that to his act. Right. But when he talked about when he was leaving Vegas, and, and I loved this, he was like, uh, "The guy was like, you 'You're never working this fucking town again. You will never work in this town again.'" He's like, "It didn't bother me that much. If he told me you will never fuck." In this town again, <laughs> I would have been like, "Oh, maybe I'll go back on stage." Right, right. I mean, that, I'm paraphrasing, but that's right. basically what he says. Right. So it's like, yeah, of course they had their doubts. Right. But again, the system has changed, bruh. System is totally different. There was a. Uh, I read an interview with Albert Brooks. Yeah. Where he talked about the current system of comedy and comedy clubs, uh-huh. and he was like, "I don't get it." He's like, "I don't get how you're supposed to grow in this system." He's like, I don't get how this is supposed to create the next Carlin or Hicks when it's like what the priorities of that system are aren't comedy as much anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm paraphrasing again. But I remember him saying in specific, I don't understand how in this system you're supposed to get the next Bill Hicks. Right. Right. Which Bill Hicks would probably say at his time he didn't understand how the fuck he was supposed to be Bill Hicks. Yeah, totally. Either. So it's like and of course, you know, people love to martyr him. Uh, but of course, I think he was brilliant. Yeah, I'm I'm on that bandwagon of yeah. Bill Hicks was a fucking genius bandwagon. I'm sorry to be so predictable, audience. <laughs> right. But it's like now it's 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 about the almighty dollar, of course. Right. And and this is my version of what you're saying. Okay. I compare myself to certain people, but they seem to be they're more palatable, more accessible. They're the box that they fit in is. Either at that time, it's easier to define. Right. It's it's more popular. Right. And I feel outside of that box, so it's like I'm not the type 
that's being sought after a lot right now. Right. So it's like, so I'm just kind of on the outside. Right. But it's like, I know if you're not a straight white male, you're basically a niche comedian. You know, you're that sure. black comic. You're that female comic. You're that black female comic. You're the black gay female comic. Right. So it's like some people do their careers or go after stand up in a way where they're like, I'm going to, to make, I'm going to concentrate on this type. I'm going to be the comic that does X. Right. So that way and everyone they, will always understand it. And they do that for, to the nth degree. To the nth degree. And it's either, it, it's fight or flight, you know, and it works for some. And I guess I see it sometimes. It's like, wow, they did that thing specifically, stuck to that thing, and that's what they're doing. But I'm more interested in, I, I don't want to decide what I am. Right. Because that's fucking boring to and me. show the nuances of just who I am, the nooks and crannies. I'm a little bit of everything. And, and grow. Yeah. You know? And I'm seeing, like, there's, I just feel like to be a comic, you you can't be the exact same comic you were ten, in, in 10 years. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. and that's, and I was saying this to um, somebody the other day, maybe it was Eliza Skinner, um, that maybe it was on the podcast as well, <laughs> that it's like sometimes when certain comedians get breaks really early, yeah, then they can never break what they were. If you get a break at three years, two years in, then you have to be that two-year, three-year comic. You have to basically figure out what your equation is at that time and stick to it forever. Right. Forever. Because you're that guy. You're that guy. You're the person that does that thing. So now that's what the demand is for you, to do that thing. Right. So I wouldn't doubt if some of them feel stuck as well. That like, well, I can't make a personality change. I, I keep hearing all these stories about all sorts of comics that feel stuck in what whatever voice they created for themselves, regardless of who they are inside and what's going on in their lives. It's like, well, I can never talk about that because that's not what I do on stage. Right. I do this, this, and this, and if anything happens to me that's not those things, I just have to leave it out. They have to constantly put everything into those filters. Right, right. But I want to be able to talk about anything and everything. Right. You know? I'm sure like comics like dice clay and stuff got to that point where they're just like god i gotta keep putting on the leather gloves and keep doing this thing oh that's a possibility maybe i mean you know you'd have to talk to dice about that <laughs> right right but um well that's the other thing is like well how much are people buying their own bs and i guess i romanticize these neuroses that we're discussing okay. that i feel like these are the things that are going to push me to be better right that i am questioning continue to question right. myself and others. And of course, when I don't shrink from what I think is this just giant mass that I can't possibly lift off my shoulders, right. then I feel like I'm moving towards what it is I want to move towards, right. whatever the hell that means. Yeah. So I, 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 yeah, go ahead. I want to get, I want to get in, the football term of it is like when a quarterback is in the pocket, they're in a safe area where they can throw the ball very effectively. Mm -hmm. I want to get in there, that that zone, that place. Well, what does that mean? You mean creatively or just what? I've heard stories of like certain comics that I think are super funny. Like I heard stories of like, say like, um, like I heard stories about like Hannibal when he was like, Pete talks about when Hannibal was in Chicago, people were like, he's not very good. And then he became very good. And I just remember seeing him like three years ago. He's one of my favorites. I saw I saw him like three years ago, and just I was like, "Oh fuck!" Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just something is ha I don't know what something is happening. He is in a zone unlike any other 
Well, I don't and, – and, and here's the crazy part is that same guy, same glasses, same whatever, same great jokes. I love the firefighter joke that he did on, on, on Ferguson like five years ago. But something like a few years ago, it just clicked. Things I don't know what it was, not even just industry stuff. When I watched him, I go, man, he's in the zone right now. There's just he's operating. Um, and I'm like, I saw Pete the other night at Holy Fuck. He pulled out the, just the notes like this, right? And he was just reading off, and he's just like, uh, premise, crushing. Okay, pulled it out again, okay. right? Crushing, right, right, go, right. He's in this. I go that the pocket. He's operating in the pocket, just. Wherever he is, touchdown. Whatever, swish. It doesn't matter. Well, from the outside, sure. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it's. It I don't looks know like that. Maybe he's. I don't know. On the inside, but you. It, it, it's hard to know. It is hard to know. You really believe that? Like maybe, possibly on the inside, he's just like, "What's going on?" We've talked about this. Yeah. Really? He he doesn't know. He. But I mean, like, and I, I know what you're talking about, and I'm I'm looking at it in a similar sense. There's certain comedians. Like uh, that, I refuse to follow uh-huh. right now. Like um, I hate following Sean Patton or Adomian. Yeah, you know um, Eric Andre. Yeah, Eric Andre and I are similarish in that we're black and we use a lot of words. Okay, even though I think that our acts aren't similar and Not what we all. do on stage, I think that people just see high energy and and information. They go high energy, lots of words, rant. Yeah, and they they just they just put them together. The subject matter is completely. And I'm trying to go. I don't know what the hell I'm trying to do. I'm trying right. to go in a different direction, a, a, a darker, subtler, more personal, whatever the hell. Right. It's kind of direction, but. Um, By the way, seems I'm saying to all me, of this. I'm, yeah, I, I love everyone that I'm talking about. No, no, no. as as do I. Regard. As do I. But yeah. I'm saying we're seeing them as in their pocket, yeah. but they're still just doing what they do. You know what I mean? Right. It, I don't. It's hard to tell how aware it is that they are or aren't right you know as much as that they're trusting themselves right that's the difference is that maybe they have a little bit more self-trust in that moment you know or a better discerning ear and that's all the shit that comes with experience sure you know what i mean sure and it's just like you get better the end especially if you go out of your comfort zone if you're not always playing to your base if you will right which which of course is still up for debate because there are comedians that are specifically alty and there's comedians that are specifically clubby yep. and there are comedians that can do both. Yeah. And I think that there's room for all three. You know what I mean? I'm, tr- I have talked the shit and made the judgments in the past, but there are things to be gained from all of that because there are comedians that their acts are so different, but that's just who they are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, by all means, only perform in those rooms because yeah. that's where people who are going to get what you're doing. doing. Yeah, you don't have to go to the Laugh Factory if you're just going to be – everyone's going to be confused. Why waste your time? Yeah. You know, unless you're interested in trying to make what you do work in that room. Right. Right? So I have a similar sort but of to a thing. to go back on what you were talking about and yeah. being palatable and fitting in a certain box for, right. say, Hollywood, wouldn't that be important to know how to switch it? Uh, again, debate. Debate. I yeah, think it is a debate. I, Actually, you're right. It is a debate. It's a debate, but it depends on what you're feeling for yourself, I guess. Right. You know what I mean? The other thing here is, what the hell is failure? You know what I mean? Like, like, what does that even? Two things for me. Okay. Yeah. What do you see as failure for yourself? Not being everything that I could be. 
So not saying what I wanted to say on stage and sticking to my plan, whether that's getting up at that show we did at Bruco, where it was me, Ben Bazune's show, where everyone was just kind of tanking that night. Or they were just, they were just whatever. I didn't think people were tanking. It they was were, actually a really good show, I thought. I thought, I thought were, everybody did really well. I thought they were okay. I thought they were okay. Huh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, See, but I felt like everyone was sticking to their guns at that exactly. show. Exactly. That's why maybe I, it seemed like the audience was also really with it. But yeah. it just seemed like everyone had a set where everyone said exactly what they wanted that to say. Right. And that's why I was like, no one ever, no one ever came off as like, oh, everyone came off like I did what I wanted to do. Byron Bowers got off stage at that show. You will, you go up to him and you go, you're a real comic, man. And that was it. That is what I, that I would go. Okay, that's what I. Want. Well, because that's what off stage. But it was great, and every single one of his jokes wasn't crushing. But he's one of my favorites because he's like he just did what he does. Like, he stuck no, to his fucking yeah, guns. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to talk about going to medieval nights for six minutes, whether you like it or not. Right. And I've seen him do it in, in several different types of rooms, and I love every minute of it. And I go, that's so fucking great. That. So it's. Doing what you want, saying what I really believe on stage. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that our art form is directly hinged upon reaction. Yes, You're only as good as what the audience says. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Acceptance. If I can be accepted by people that I respect, that will mean a lot to me. I'm in the exact same place, man. In the exact same place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There are certain comedians that, for some reason, I wish to have their approval. Some of which I do have, and some of which I don't, because I don't know them. Then I have the approval of comedians I never thought would ever pay attention to me at all. Right. But it's like, wow, they texted me and said that really nice fucking thing. Yeah. What a wow! That person said I was funny. That's incredible to me. Right. Which is cool. Right. Now, like I, when you told me that when Margaret Cho said you were like a young. Um, yeah, that ego, that was a huge compliment that she gave me. She's like, you're like, she's like, you remind me of David Cross in the '90s. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I couldn't even remember. I was like, I don't even understand what that means. Yeah. But when I think of his comedy, then I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. That's incredible. Cool. I don't see myself as that at all. Right. You know, because obviously we're very different comics, but but also he is someone that I see as this untouchable something else. Right. Yeah. And that's what we do. We see all these comedians that are up there as they're fucking untouchable. They're so sure of themselves. They're us. They are us. Right. There are younger comedians that look up to me and I'm like, what do you know what's happening in my brain? Right. How could you possibly? But and they, the same thing will happen to them. <laughs> yeah. They'll get to this point where they're 11, 12 years. They can do an hour. They've done all this TV shit. This, this and the they're like, fuck, what am I, what am I, what's, where's my next joke going to come from? And there are comedians that are three years along like, hey, man, you're one of my favorites. Like, what? Why, how could that be? I'm not one of my favorites. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I like it's gonna you. happen. I don't like me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> right. Or or give me some of what you're smoking. Right. Because I could use that self-confidence. How do you separate yourself and go, I would like the things my friend has, but I am not him. I need to accept that. I don't talk like him. I don't look like him. My act is not like him. I need to stop, even though others project might. Did you say, how do you prevent yourself from. you just said it everything you just said is exactly what you need to remind yourself of that's exactly it dude that's the same thing i do right i'm not him uh-huh. i'm me right. i'm the only me right right 
Uh-huh. Of course, in the industry, I'm black guy 87. <laughs> right, right, right. But I don't. Ha- I can't worry about them. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And when you look at it, when you look at all those those people who are that we're seeing as fuck, they they're doing that thing. Right. There is a point where they just have to stop fucking giving a shit about what's everyone thinking about me. You yeah. know, not that they don't think about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but you have to think about it less and less and less. And just like, I'm just going to do exactly what I do. Sometimes I try to, one of the saving graces that I feel, and I feel kind of lucky is, is how it's, lo- it might, might be lonely at the top when you're the guy that everybody Googles and nitpicks and breaks apart your set and every move. And when everybody comes back into the room to watch you and to nitpick at your failures and i'm like hey maybe it is a blessing that everybody doesn't come back in the room to see my set that maybe i don't get the best stops there spots there is power and anonymity and being able to grow without some of my favorite people seeing me there could be power i, I try sometimes i try to be gracious and grateful well this that. is what i was talking about to my friend jess wood earlier today jess wood is a new york-based comedian uh and it is this I tend to project an expectation. Right. You know what I mean? Especially if I'm on a show and I'm the closer. I really do a number on myself. Right. Especially if there's people before me yeah, who are either killing. I noticed that on Holy Fuck. You're like, God damn it. Or they're either killing or there's someone that I respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I'm looking at them like, fuck, they, they're in the pocket. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the more I watch it, the more I get psyched out. Just yeah. like, oh, fuck. How am I supposed to follow this, right? Yes. I, I'll do that to myself. But it's a pressure that I've invented that I'm putting on myself, right? And especially because I'm supposed to be relatively established, then I'm feeling like, okay, well, I'm this guy who has these many credits and this much experience, and uh, I'm closing the show. So it means I'm supposed to deliver in some sort of way. Right. So I better do jokes that I know are going to fucking just knock it out of the park. Right. Whatever the hell that means. Right. And I've taken away I'll I'm taking away when I'm saying this to myself I'm taking away my sense of play. I'm taking away my sense of experimentation. The things that will do me the best. Yeah. Will do the best for me. Right. To have that sense of play, that sense of experimentation, the sense of I'm just going to talk and do whatever the fuck I want. You know, where you're talking about Pete's just reading the premises off of his paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like because he's throwing it out there, but I'm putting too much pressure on myself. Too much expectation to fucking. I gotta fucking nail this. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. gonna leave, being like, "Oh, that that guy was the closer." That's what I'm thinking. Right. 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 But if I just stick to my fucking guns, this is why I'm trying to. When I'm doing shows, I'm like, I don't want to be last. I'm don't, I don't want to be last because I want the freedom to experiment and to fail. You have to fail before it gets good. Yeah. And I am giving myself more permission to ramble. You know Jackie Cation, right? Yeah. I love, she's one of my favorites to watch because I have seen her go on stage and just ramble for 10 to 20 minutes and there's some stuff in there that's really funny and she's like, nope. It's like, and a lot of it just doesn't work. 80% of it is just like nothing, nothing, nothing. And then I'll see her two months after that. She's turned it into fucking material. Yeah. And it's like, wow. That's incredible. She just, she just professional comic <laughs> that's what she just did yeah she just rambled until it became something yeah and then it became something i'm like wow that's how to do comedy that's how i feel you right. know what i mean right, right. and that's it's the, alchemy man and that's the kind of shit that 
when Louis is talking about just like digging into his, he's just talking about whatever and seeing what happens. That's what he's doing, you know? And it's like, we can do that. We all have this skill set, but of course we get caught up in our fucking heads about stuff. Right. So I have to give myself, because I'm so obsessed with, okay, I got to get laughs today. I got to get laughs, this many laughs tonight, or I'm not going to be able to sleep. Right. But if I just, if I ramble and I fail, but I talked about exactly what I want to talk about, I feel just as successful. And it's the longer form, longer aim. I'm going to ramble for as long as it takes until it becomes something else. Yeah. It's a longer process. And in L.A., it's even longer because there's so many, so few shows, shows. where it's like, okay, like last week I did a show every night. Uh-huh. This week I did a show last night. Right. It's Tuesday right now as we're recording this. Yes. I did a show Monday night, okay. which wasn't even really stand-up, even though I did end up doing stand-up. And I'm doing a show Friday. Right. I have a full week of nothing. Right. Last week, shows every night. I did multiple shows in different nights. Yes. Which is hard to do in LA. Extremely difficult. But to it, do. but I write so much during the day. I'm thinking so much about all these sets, and now I have this downtime to like. Well, I need to fucking create. Right. You know what I mean? It's harder to find those places. That's why it's like I, you know what? I'm not above going to open mics. I'm not above that. Yeah. You know, comedy store scares me. But why don't I go there? Right. Why don't I just fucking go to the comedy store and see what the fuck it's about? Right. There's something to be gained. Sure. And maybe I'll just gain, yep, never should have came in here. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> but still. Right, right. Oh, God. <laughs> well, anyway, so. Okay, how do you deal with. Yeah. Was that a check of where we need to be? Yeah, I was going to I was gonna close it up, but you asked me what you were going to ask me. Okay. Um. We chose this career where oftentimes I tell myself I chose satisfaction over security. Okay. Do you ever – these things of fear, failure, rejection get exacerbated when you think of the future? Yeah, because it's so unknown and it's so unclear, unpredictable. How do you reckon with that? How do you deal with that? Because I go I, – the year's closing up. The, the industry, so to speak – People will leave start probably like December 15th, 16th-ish. Right. And they'll come back in the new year. You take stock on what you did this past year, and then you take stock on what's what's to come ahead. Sometimes you go, I get worried, man. I go, we got to do it all over. I don't, where's the ship headed? There's something excited about being like, I don't know. And there's sometimes, I the only thing I have solace is the fact that Goat Face is every t- two weeks we're shooting a sketch and we put in videos and we put them out. Well, that's fantastic. That's the one of the thing, one of the few things that keeps me sane. Aim for, you just have to, as the improv game goes, you just have to find the game and heighten it, you know, for yourself. Right. If you're shooting sketches, why not shoot a TV show? Right. Why not create a movie? Uh-huh. That flows like a, a gigantic sketch. Yeah. Just to do that. Yeah. So it's just like, I guess you just have to give yourself these personal goals that, yeah. like, okay, I'm going to do these things. You know what I mean? Because then once you have them done, then you can even aim for other things. Yeah. If you guys make a TV show or a movie, then that's something that you can pitch around. Right. And if it doesn't work, well, then make it up like another one. Right. You know? And I'm saying this to you because I'm saying it to myself as well. <laughs> right, right. Because it's like, okay, I just need to, and that's what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm trying to, that's, that, you know, that's why I care about doing this podcast because it's like, this is a personal 
goal for me. Yeah. Luckily, some people like it, and hopefully more people will like it. But the point of it is to be able to talk to motherfuckers like yourself right. and talk through these fucking big ideas, yeah. and some of them will become great stand-up bits. I'm trying to open that up open up this well so the well, trying to open up my own pandora's box well, so i, I can love most about catch it, some of these demons what I love and most about it is material. That you basically told all the superheroes to come in talk to you for an hour or so and be like what's your specific kryptonite <laughs> that's what i love the most about it because you never every the premise of every podcast or inside the actor's studio is so tell me about men in black well how great who gives a fuck what about those days when you were like i don't know if I can be the Fresh Prince. <laughs> to me, that's so much more than, was it fun to shoot Ali? Of course it was fun. It was a blockbuster movie. Yes, it was a lot of fun to do Independence Day. I killed fucking aliens. But how did you react to when people panned you for being Ali? And sure. people were like, you're the exactly. wrong person. Exactly. That's the Will Smith you want to know. Absolutely. But you never hear that in press junkets. Everyone's gonna ask you on the press junket, "What's it? You know how? What's 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 set like? Unfairly legal? You'll be like, it's great, fucking food, money, check, awesome, Vancouver, beautiful. But what was it like when you were testing and you didn't know if you were gonna get it? You're like, oh fuck, you want to talk about that? Okay, <laughs> let's talk about that. Like to me, like let's talk about that, right? Because that's more of life, and what we do is that than this DVD that I'm pointing at. Well, you so. gotta, you know, and that's why it's like. Well, I'm glad that you think that. And yeah, cuz I'm trying to get through that right. and swim through that sea more effectively than Don't get me wrong, I the good sets are great and I love those and I go and yeah, they're great. But Well, it's not getting through this. I guess it's just really, is my thing. Yeah, go through it and just create create more for yourself. Yeah. Create more dimension for yourself. I mean, it's like, you know, we were talking about the uh all the different, you know, the types when we go out for like the ethnic roles. Sure. And then I just recently coached you in your uh, audition for Mindy. Yeah. Mindy wrote that. That's why it's an ethnic character that isn't cartoonish. Right. It's like, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Are you saying that Indian people are three dimensional? Yeah. It's like, oh, this is a character. This is an actual role as opposed to like. The guy, you know, whatever Indian stereotypes, yeah, yeah, yeah. fill in your own. But it's like, yeah, because an Indian person runs that show, so it's like, good. That's a good fucking thing. Right. You know, it's like something like, um, oh, I don't want to disparage any other shows. Okay, let's not do that. I'm just saying, that, like, when there are writers of color writing characters of color, well, then guess what? You're going to have actual characters of color as opposed to caricatures. Right. Am I right, motherfucker? Right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, and also, we write white people better than they write themselves. That's I'm just gonna throw that out. Really? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just made that up. Oh, you go. I'm literally throwing that out because I don't know if it's a true point or not. Yeah, I'm throwing it out. I want to write a movie that's all black people and have a magical uh, uh, Caucasian. Can I can I t- say something on, on record before Uh-oh. we close? Do it. Um, I don't know. You should know that Little Baron shouldn't exist because I believe you have the one skill set that you cannot teach. I'll give you scrambling an egg. Yes, in sports, they go, they go in basketball. sports metaphor. I'm the wrong yeah, guy. Here we go. No, no, no. Go ahead. I think you, you can understand this. And so, for example, basketball. They say you can teach a guy how to shoot a jump shot. You just shoot 500 jumpers a day, and he'll learn how to shoot the basketball. I can't teach you to jump like Michael Jordan. You can't teach that. He was jumping like that since he was a kid. The the powers that you possess as Baron Vaughn, the comedic superhero, the ability to sing. 
get into characters, riff, do these little things outside of you talking the way you're talking normally is a superpower. It's very difficult to teach. I can take a dialect class and I can learn, but being able to do act outs and like that, that's a superpower that it's it's very difficult to teach, man. You wield a very, 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 very powerful superpower. Oh, all I hear is so much pressure. <laughs> that's not pressure. That's that's like that. that I'm just all saying, I hear is like, oh, damn. You got it. it, kid. You have it. Like you have the the intangible. Just like I'd compliment you back, but now it would now it would feel like by rote. By rote. Now it'd feel like an obligation. But like. People have told me they go, you're likable on stage. They go, people like you. To you is to what me, people say. Yeah, okay. To me, they go, I think when I see you on stage, people, I go, that's great. Because I know for a fact that is one of the most important things in stand-up. Mm-hmm, Likeability. Mm-hmm. Like, that will make your job, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know a percentage, but I would say 85% easier mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. you just not being, uh, like, I don't like- Well, I remember having a long conversation with Dave Ross. About exactly what we're talking about. Right. And he brought you up. Dave Ross is one of my favorite people. As an example of someone that he is so excited to see uh-huh. and watch. Right. And, and I totally agree. Uh-huh. Because you are taking that likability, but you talk about things. Right. You talk about actual shit. Right. Which is great. You could talk about bullshit. Right. If you, you know what? And this is the thing. If you talk about bullshit, if you were to be like, you know what? I'm just going to talk about bullshit. You might get really far doing that right but then you how's your soul gonna be right 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 you know what i mean yeah and you don't talk about bullshit you talk about actual shit right and you you synthesize all sorts of knowledge your personal experience into this gigantic i don't know soup of comedy (laughs) right 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 And right and i'm gonna pour it down your throat for you as well right right and it's very exciting to see thank you yeah so fuck I'm glad that we can end on compliments on a positive yeah, note man. here. Anyway. Right. Keep on keeping on. Thanks for having me, man. Of course. That was really fun. Probably the moment, the exact moment that I hit stop, Hassan had this light bulb go over his head and he said the words it's about choice and uh that's what the realization was that he had right after i hit stop please if you come on my podcast have all of your realizations while we're recording um everything else doesn't exist but it is about choice it's about doing what you chose to do and choosing to do what you do what Oh, man, that that was almost profound if I didn't become confused in the middle of my own sentence. Does that make any sense? I, um, I was thinking about a theme that comes up in this, a theme that keeps coming up in the podcast is I think I have an insecurity about being included in things. I've had very few recurring dreams in my life. And I remember having one when I was probably in middle school and I was hanging out on the stoop of my apartment with a couple of the kids in my neighborhood that I hung out with all the time. One of them uh, goes, hey, you know what? Let's go to my place and play Nintendo. And everyone's like, yeah, like a like a Sunny D commercial. 
just so much enthusiasm and excitement. And I, of course, was like, yeah, wait a minute, let me go tell my mom. I go up inside to tell my mom. I come back outside. They're all gone. And then I realize I don't know where that kid lives. I've never been to his place. So I just can't go. I now am not included. And I think that that comes up a lot with me feeling like, hey, am I included in comedy? Am I included in this particular scene? Am I included in this particular group of actors or kinds of TV shows that people are involved with? And a lot of the times, I guess I don't. So that's something I should work on, feeling like I am included in on shit. And hey, you know what? Something I'm included in on? The All Things Comedy Network. That is a transition and a half. Um, Two new podcasts have joined the All Things Comedy Network let me tell you about the one is The Naughty Show with Sam Tripoli, who is a very, very funny man, and he is very naughty. <laughs> Podcast ways. And then the other one is called The Bone Zone, which is Brendan Walsh, Randy Ludke, and uh, uh, Davey Johnson. I don't know if I'm saying it Ludke or Lightkey. I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but Randy Ludke. I'll just say it really quickly so that way you can't tell if I'm making a mistake. Um, I know all three of those guys. They're very funny. Brendan is uh, a, a consummate prankster and likes to pick on me on Twitter in a sense that his followers have no idea if he does hate me or not. Um, but speaking of people that don't hate me, I wanted to give a shout out to a couple of people who have revealed themselves to be actual fans of this podcast. Uh, Lloyd Dig Johnson in the his. Um, Jenny Ching. Ninja Jenny, who I have met a couple times. She's a cool gal. Hey, Jenny, you're a cool gal. And uh, two guys that I know, Chris Lambert, who's a comedian in New York, and uh, Jeremy Oblivion. I don't, I forget what his actual real last name is, but it goes by Jeremy Oblivion. And uh, I've met that guy in uh, here in Los Angeles. He's a filmmaker that I met through a gentleman named Cash Hartzell. Uh, so, hey, guys. Thanks for listening. I'm high-fiving you through the sound waves right now. Boom! Bang! Pow! Not you, Jenny. I'm not high-fiving you. I'm I'm giving you a fist bump. <laughs> because I know that you, a high-five intimidates you. Anyway, um, here's another thing that I noticed in the podcast. I say the phrase, in a sort of a way, a lot. I'm going to stop doing that. Talk to you next time.